Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message will be both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, until further notice, we are not meeting physically in the church building and instead are live streaming our worship service on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We hope you will join us either on our website or on our Facebook page for worship. Now, here is this week's message. Well, I'm so glad you're here with us this morning. I know that you're getting restless. I mean, all of us are. Everything's shut down, and there's only so much you can do at your house or only so much you want to do at your house. My kids are going absolutely crazy. Uh, Jessica, my wife, I mean, she's finishing up her master's degree and now homeschooling three kids. I mean, I just can't imagine what she's dealing with and the pressure that's put on her and probably you as well. And we can't take our kids to the park. We can't really do anything with them. And as a church staff, we've been trying to get all this church um, online and making things live go run as smooth as we can. I mean, just life is hectic right now. Maybe for you as well. I mean, in the midst of this pandemic, our lives have been turned upside down and inside out. Which is why I was quite envious when I read about this one couple. You see, on March 22nd, they went to Maldives for their honeymoon. And although the virus had kind of already broken out, I mean, it was going around, they were told to just go ahead and enjoy their honeymoons. They were there for six days. I mean, look at this place. It's absolutely stunning. I mean, this is what paradise would look like to me. And so during their stay, the outbreak got so bad that they ended up shutting down all of the airports and they weren't able to catch a flight back home. So what turned out to be a six-day vacation turned out to be a lot longer. Now, all the places to be stuck during a pandemic all the places to have to be a stay-at-home order, this would be the place I would want to be stuck. In the middle of the ocean on an island. And what makes this so amazing for them, not only is it the view, it's the fact because of their local laws that they're not allowed to send any of the staff home while there was at least a guest there. This couple ended up being the only two left in a resort that serviced 180 people. The person who took care of the room came and checked on them five times a day. They would have catered dinners on the beach by themselves. All the performers would still perform. During breakfast time, they had nine waiters. I mean, they are stuck in what looks like the middle of paradise with all of the staff included in fact, this is, it said that the diving instructor, every time he would pass them, he would just beg them to go snorkeling with them. He would beg them so he could take them out to learn how to do that kind of things. And if you have to be stuck somewhere, if you got to obey the stay-at-home orders, how amazing would it be to be here in paradise? Now, I don't know what paradise looks like for you, but to me, this is as close as you can possibly get. You're in paradise with your spouse, have all the amenities you could dream of, and a full staff to take care of you. And I hate to admit it, but I was rather envious. Well, that is until I kept reading the article. You see, it ended up saying that the financial toll was weighing heavy on them, that although they've been giving a generously discounted rate, they still had to pay for their stay. 
In fact, their stay was now chipping out their savings account, which was what they were using to buy a new home. Check this out. Their original stay for six days was at least $4,500. A room there per night is $750. And I don't know what kind of discount they're getting, but regardless, after airfare, oh, and by the way, going home, they would have to charter a jet. So what looks like paradise, what seems like paradise, wasn't paradise at all because of the cost associated with it. You see, paradise isn't just a beautiful place. Paradise is somewhere that brings exceptional happiness and delight. And it can't be paradise if you're going broke in the process. You see, that's what makes today so special. In fact, that's why we celebrate, because the cost of true eternal paradise has been paid. And we celebrate today because Jesus, the person who offers us this eternal paradise, has promised that we could be there with him. And if Jesus, or anyone for that matter, can predict their own death and resurrection and actually pull it off, well, we just believe everything else he says. And while Jesus said quite a bit, and we can't look at all of it this morning, I just want to look at a couple of things specifically that he said on the cross. Because if there was ever a time for someone's true character to come out, if there was ever a time we could see the true emotions of a person, it would be hanging on a Roman cross. You see, while the cross is a symbol to the Christian faith, in the first century it didn't stand for hope. The cross or crucifixion was a gruesome form of death. Before a victim was crucified, they would first be beaten in torture. And ancient sources say that nothing was off limits during this time. Usually it was flogging and being whipped, which is where they would stretch you out so you were fully extended and beat you with a whip that had shards of glass and metal in it. Then they would make you carry part of your cross to the place that you're going to be crucified as another form of torture, as another way of wearing you down after you've been beaten. Then they would take you and tie you uh, with rope to the cross or drive nails through your wrist and your feet. In fact, archaeologists have only found the remains of one person who was crucified, and they found a a four-and-a-half-inch piece of metal through the heel. The victim of crucifixion was almost always executed without clothing to shame them even more. And they would be lifted off of the ground so their feet couldn't touch, but not too high because they still wanted the animals to come by and gnaw at them. They would be lifted up in a public spot, usually public roads, so travelers could see this is what's in store for you if you cross Rome. They would usually die from asphyxiation, shock, heart heart failure, or even dehydration. And many times they weren't taken down, but they were left up so everybody could see and the birds could eat at their corpse. You see, everything was done on the cross to humiliate and dishonor the person. The cross back then especially wasn't a symbol of hope, but of despair. And even on the cross we see Jesus continuing to offer hope because it was on the cross that he finished what he started. 
You see, Jesus had a public ministry for about three and a half years. And while we're told a lot about his miraculous birth, we're not told much about his teenage years and early adult years. But when he was 30, he went public with his ministry. He pretty much goes on tour announcing that the kingdom of God has come. You see, back then they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have YouTube, of course, they didn't have newspapers. So anytime there would be a new ruler or a new king, people would go from town to town making a royal announcement saying, there's a new king, there's a new person in charge. And that's what we see Jesus and his closest followers doing. They're going around from town to town proclaiming the kingdom of God has come. God is doing something. God is reigning and doing something through this new leader, Jesus Christ. And to confirm this message, Jesus, of course, was doing a ton of different miracles. He taught with great authority. He healed people. He fed people. He freed people and he forgave people. And, of course, back then the religious elite, the gatekeepers, couldn't stand that Jesus wasn't pointing them to them. Jesus was pointing them to the Father. You see, they wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be the ones who controlled who did what and when. But to the religious elite, Jesus called them hypocrites. He said they weren't really truly following God at all. And instead, he hung out with sinners and the unrighteous. And Jesus didn't show them favoritism like they would expect. He came to call, he says, all people into a relationship with the Father. You see, Jesus wasn't the type of leader they were waiting for. You see, the entire Jewish nation was waiting for a Messiah, a kingly leader, to lead them out of the oppression they were facing by Rome. They knew a leader would come. They were waiting on this Messiah. They just figured he would be like the ones they'd seen before. People like Moses, people like Joshua, Ezra, Nehemiah, or any of the judges who'd led them from their great enemy to be this amazing nation. But Jesus was different. He was unexpected. He alone was taking on the greatest enemy, and they didn't know what was happening. You see, Jesus was teaching so different. He taught them things they'd never heard of. Mark sums it up like this, Mark 8, 31. It says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, the Son of Man was Jesus' favorite name for himself, it says, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. You see, this was so different than anything they'd ever heard of. No other leader in their history or their scriptures taught like this. Resurrecting from the dead wasn't some type of Jewish expectancy. They didn't know what he was doing. In fact, this was so different than anything they'd ever heard. Peter, one of the 12, the closest to Jesus, rebuked Jesus for talking like this. See, Peter didn't think that was possible. I mean, dead is dead. This wasn't something they heard of. This wasn't something they were expecting. They wanted a strong military leader, one that would lead them to defeat Rome. They weren't expecting one to die on a cross, especially a Roman one. You see, then they found out that Jesus had at least the first part right. You see, the scribes, the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the religious elite, they couldn't take Jesus anymore. They ended up arresting him for blasphemy. He was claiming to be God's son. He was claiming to be equal with God, and they couldn't have it because Jesus was saying he was 
the Messiah, the King. So they arrested him one night, one peaceful night when he was with his followers praying. They came and pulled him away and put him on a false trial for them to hear him out. They arrested him, they questioned him, falsely accused him, made their case against him. And then they thought they'd heard enough. And it says, then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. You see, Rome didn't play. And they charged Jesus with the two greatest offenses to Rome, not paying taxes and starting a rule on his own. And Pilate, the governor of the time, he didn't want to kill Jesus. He knew he hadn't done anything wrong, but the Jewish people were irate. They were furious with him. So Pilate had Jesus tortured and beaten. He figured it's one thing to say you want someone killed. It's another thing to watch him publicly get beat. After he was beaten, he took him before the crowds again, and the crowds didn't have enough. Their evil ran so deep, they said, crucify him. Although Pilate knew he didn't deserve it, he did not want an uprising by the Jewish people. Or his bosses would think he's not able to do his job, and perhaps he would be the one tortured next. With the crucifixion already scheduled, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine how Jesus felt? Everything in history that tells us about what Rome did to somebody before they were crucified, the Bible writers tell us actually happened to Jesus. They stretched him out and whipped him. They tore the clothes off of him. They made him carry his cross. They spit on him. They mocked him, publicly sentenced him. Although the governor publicly admitted he had done nothing wrong. But after all of that, after he was stretched out, nails driven through his wrist to keep him from falling off the cross, he was hanging there. And he says this. Can you believe this? Look, Luke 23, 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. What we do know about Jesus is what he asked the Father truly happened. Jesus asked for forgiveness for the people who tortured him, who beat him, who mocked him, who hung him out to die on a bloody cross. And you see, all of us have learned how to be polite. We've all learned to be nice and kind, even when we don't feel like it, but we all have a threshold. There's only so much we can fake before our true character comes out. And when you've been held up all night, when you've been publicly tortured, when you've been nailed on a cross, your true character would be exposed. You couldn't hide anything any longer. And on that cross at the center of the true unfiltered emotions of Jesus Christ, he shows nothing but grace and forgiveness. See, it doesn't matter what you've done in this life. Jesus will forgive you. Jesus is willing to forgive you. In fact, he wants to forgive you. You see, he knew that because of what he was going through and what he was doing, that forgiveness was actually possible. Even for you. 
So as he hung on the cross, we see the depth of Jesus' forgiveness, his willingness to forgive. And not everyone ignored that call for forgiveness that day. You see, there were two other people hanging to the left and the right of Jesus. They both heard the insults that the soldiers were giving Jesus. They both heard people mocking him. But they also heard Jesus' plea for forgiveness. Luke 23, 39-41 says this. It says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you this Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting our de- what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. You see, there's no doubt that these two criminals represent the plight of all mankind. You see, all of us are criminals deserving death for our sins. Perhaps some have done worse than others. Perhaps some have done better than others. But in the eyes of a holy, perfect God, we are all sinners deserving death. And in the end, because of sin, we are under a death sentence. Thankfully, it won't be a cross. But death will not escape any of us. Right now, we are all reminded of how fragile we truly are as humans. A microscopic virus has brought the world to its knees because the fear of death. The entire world has been reminded we are not in control. We are not as powerful as we think we are. You see, the criminals hanging on the cross knew knew they were no longer in control. Death was facing them. They were looking at the doorway of it. And one man jumped on the insults that everybody else was throwing at Jesus. He repeats the same things. He says, if you're the Messiah, save yourself. But of course adds, save us too. He chose to mock Jesus. He chose to insult Jesus. He chose to reject Jesus. In his greatest time of need, he chose to mock God for not doing what he thought he should do. And perhaps now. Perhaps now you are mocking the faith. Perhaps you are asking questions like, well, if there's a God, why would he let this happen? Why doesn't he stop this? While we all ponder questions like this, those are above our pay grade. We aren't told the answers and we'll never find them. But we can choose to mock Jesus. We can choose to mock his royal claim Or we can listen to what he offers, what he offers even on a bloody cross. Because the other criminal, no doubt, he heard Jesus Jesus offer forgiveness to the people who killed him. He heard Jesus say to the Father, forgive those who's involved in what they've done to me. And he chose to jump on that. Instead of insulting, he chose the path of forgiveness. When he was facing death, he chose faith over explanation. That criminal took responsibility for his sin. He knew what he was truly getting, what he deserved. He knew there was no time for excuses. He owned the fact that he was a sinner and he was getting justly, paying justly for what he needed. But he knew Jesus didn't deserve to die like him. He knew that Jesus was different and hadn't done anything wrong. You see, Jesus was famous. 
There's no doubt that both of these men heard about Jesus when he was doing his public ministry. There's no doubt that they rejected his offer before. There's no doubt that they chose to live on their own and do things their own way. But this one man in his greatest time of need, instead of rejecting, chose to change his mind and accept that forgiveness, accept the royal claim of Jesus, and simply said this. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. According to scholar Daryl Bach, this is the only person who ever addresses Jesus simply by his name. It was a simple, intimate request. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see, a simple confession of faith is all that was needed and all that is needed. You see, Jesus, Jesus was going to die like him. But he didn't ask Jesus to take him off the cross. He asked Jesus to remember him when he declares victory. And he doesn't know how Jesus is going to do it. He doesn't know when Jesus is going to do it. He just expects Jesus to do something. So he reaches out and said, Jesus, remember me. Remember me. This man had simple faith. He believed that Jesus could do what he claimed he would do. And he said, I deserve to be here. But Jesus, you don't. I want that forgiveness that you offered to those other men. Will you remember me in your reign? Look at this. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. That criminal didn't even have to wait a day. Death was inevitable, and he would be with Jesus in all of his glory in paradise. You see, this paradise, this eternal paradise was costly. We can't ever do enough. We can't ever earn enough money to pay our way there. But luckily for the thief and luckily for us, the price has been paid. Jesus was clear about that. See, while he was hanging on the cross, it says this, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Allah, Allah, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Through Jesus' cry of agony, feeling of abandonment hanging on a cross, we see that he accomplished what he came to do. You see, on the cross, Jesus was separated from the Father to bear the sins of the world. Paul tells us that he not only bore the sins of the world, but became sin for us. Jesus became a curse so we could be set free. William Hendricks comments, he says, The darkness meant judgment. The judgment of God upon our sins. His wrath, as it were, burning itself out in the very heart of Jesus. So that he... As our substitute suffered most intense agony, indescribable woe, terrible isolation or forsakenness, hell came to Calvary that day and the Savior descended into it and bore its horrors in our stead. You see, our sins are serious. They are so serious that Jesus paid the way by dying in our place on a cross. So we, you and I, could be one with the Father.
You see, he knew he, he completed what he came to do. It says, later knowing that everything had now been finished, so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked up a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, he, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You see, Jesus wasn't a victim. He accomplished what he intended to do. This wasn't a cry of weakness, but this was a cry of triumph. Our sins has now been paid for. His blood that was spilled, that was poured out, atoned for our sins to purify us. It was finished. Jesus willingly gave up his spirit for us. And these words would have echoed in the readers of John's ears. They would have heard the gospel where Jesus said, The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up. This command I receive from my father. You see, Jesus did indeed die that day. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. But that's not why we celebrate. We celebrate because three days later we are told he rose from the grave. Death could not hold him. And the death on the cross was just the beginning of our salvation. And as his followers, his followers could not stop reporting and telling everyone, he has risen. He's alive. In fact, history tells us that most of his closest disciples were martyred for the faith. I mean, you and I, we may live in a lie, but we surely won't die for one. You see, his resurrection wasn't something they were expecting. It was something they didn't understand. But once it happened, they then understood, even though Jesus predicted it, even though he talked about it, it didn't click because dead is dead. But after he raised, they couldn't stop speaking that he is alive. And if anyone, if Jesus could predict his own death and resurrection and actually pull it off, that means everything else he says is true. Which means forgiveness is freely given to those who want it. Jesus took our sins and bore our wrath on the cross. Jesus claims victory through the resurrection and you can be in eternal paradise with him. And that's a promise you can hold on to. We don't have to look for paradise here. It awaits us with Jesus. This world is full of disappointment, full of heartbreak. And Jesus tells us we will have trouble, but he has overcome the world. And I ask, are you living as an overcomer? Are you living as if paradise is real and you are on your way there? For me? I know when I'm going on vacation, I know when it's right around the corner, I can deal with a lot of stress. I can deal with a lot of long meetings. I'll come home from a long day of work and Jessica will say, it's only a couple more days away, Brian. We're leaving. We're going on vacation. We're going to go rest. It's only a couple more days. You see, when we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, when we keep our eyes focused on where we're going, when we keep our eyes focused on true paradise, all of this other stuff will slowly disappear. We will realize that there's something better, and it's been promised, and we have to stop looking for it here. 
Are your eyes fixed on the heavenly abode waiting for you? Are you living as if the promise of Jesus is true? And that he is preparing a place for you. And it doesn't, it doesn't cost a thing. If you haven't made a decision to follow Jesus, to spend eternity with him, you can do that at any time, including now. It's simple as accepting a free trip. It's just acknowledging that you're a sinner. You see, the sin costs something. The cross was the payment. And if we're saying we're not sinners, we're saying we don't need the cross. But because we are sinners, we are acknowledging that we have a need, and then we accept the forgiveness given to us by Jesus. The forgiveness is what prompted that man to respond to Jesus that day. The forgiveness of your sins is why you should accept Jesus. And then we believe in him. We put our faith and trust. And it doesn't mean we understand everything. What's important is that you believe that he's God's son. You believe he's the payment for our sin. You believe that he has come to save you and you confess him as Lord. And then you just need a humble confession of faith. Something like, Jesus, I want to be with you in your kingdom. I want you to reign in my life. You are my Savior. You see, today, we're reminded we have a choice. Because all of us are looking for the same things. The humans haven't changed in thousands of years. We surely won't anytime soon. We're all looking for peace. We're all looking for security. We're all looking for beauty and comfort and love. All of us are. We're looking. We're looking for paradise. And paradise is possible. Paradise is real. But paradise will never be found on this earth. No matter how rich you are, no matter how powerful you are, you aren't in control and you are at the mercy of our God. But he loves you. And he wants you to be a part of what he's doing in this world. So why not admit the obvious? Admit that you need rescuing and saving. Will you pray with me? Father, we live in troubled times. We're scared, nervous, and unsure of what's going on in our world. But Father, we trust that none of this has caught you off guard. While we are unsure of what you are doing, we ask you to draw us closer to you during this time. We ask that you help us keep our eyes on Jesus and the paradise that is promised. Father, those who feel your call, hear their simple prayer of salvation. If you are ready to accept God's gracious gift, all you have to do is say a simple prayer, a simple confession of need, something like, God, I am a sinner. Forgive me for my sins through the cross of Jesus. I believe that Jesus has come to save me. I confess him as Lord of my life. Jesus, I want to be with you in your kingdom because you are my Lord and my Savior. If you prayed that prayer today, you're now a child of God through Jesus Christ. We want to celebrate with you. Just reach out to us. Let us know. Will you continue to worship with me this morning?